Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. So yesterday I had an opportunity to speak with Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, who of course wants to be Prime Minister of Canada. We talked about uh, quite a few things, and just have a listen to uh, to how this went. It's actually for the for the half hour. So here's how it started. Aaron O'Toole speaking with me yesterday on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. O'Toole, Mr. Trudeau, we're told we'll be naming a September 20 federal election date. Uh, you've said an election now is not necessary but it looks like you're going to get it anyway. So how are you going to fight this particular election? You know they're going to come after you. Particularly, it appears Mr. Trudeau thinks uh, he can take you lightly. How will you fight this election? Gloves on, gloves off. Oh, well, look, a bit of both, Roy. We don't think it's the right time for an election. You know, there are risks of a fourth wave. There's businesses, thousands of them hanging on by a thread, especially in tourism and hospitality. We've been promoting some ideas for that. And he's been propped up by the, the NDP and the bloc whenever he's needed to. So there's no need for this other than him putting his political interests first. But we're going to fight essentially on Canada's recovery plan. We've got a five-point plan, jobs, accountability, a national leadership on mental health, being more prepared in the future for a crisis or a pandemic, and getting the budget back to balance over the next 10 years. Canadians deserve a plan. So this election, if it comes, Roy, will be about who's going to deal with the aftermath economic, the, the disruption, disruption, the national unity issues, who's going to get the country moving, and it's going to be a conservative government. So we're recording this interview the day before it airs, and there's a news story this morning that you're seeking intervener status in court, uh, demanding access to unredacted government documents concerning the firing of two scientists from the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg. Talk to us about that, please, and do you think Canada may have unwittingly been caught in a espionage scheme organized by China. Well, yes, that's my concern, Roy. And, and Mr. Trudeau even mentioned espionage when one time I was pinning him down in the House of Commons on this. This is unprecedented. Just as the House was wrapping up for summer, Mr. Trudeau, his government, takes Parliament to court to cover up release of documents on the Winnipeg lab scandal, the fact that scientists with deep ties to the Chinese military had been granted access to our top secret lab and had been actually doing partnership and sharing of, of dangerous pathogens and viruses with the Wuhan Institute, the Virology Institute. So as, as the whole world is investigating origins and these sorts of things, this is a red flag. And the fact that for the first time in the history of our country, he's trying to use the courts to block the will of parliament. Parliament passed to have these documents disclosed is unprecedented. So as opposition leader, as someone who served in the military, as someone that was a cabinet minister, I'm saying we're intervening so Trudeau can't use the courts to actually cover up the accountability that our democracy is supposed to give Canadians. So you're not for a moment discounting the possibility that this government was perhaps unwittingly caught in an espionage scheme organized by China. No, I, that's what we're trying to get to the, the root of, Roy. We do know there was exchange of, of virus samples, and we know uh, that was being approved and authorized throughout the time of Mr. Trudeau's leadership. We know that there was high-level access granted to scientists that we can't even get basic questions answered on, and now apparently they're back uh, in China. So there's so many questions here, and, and Roy, for six years, Justin Trudeau has been offside with respect to China, you know that, you've talked about it, I've talked about it, whether it's on Huawei, whether it's on human rights, whether it's on the, the two Michaels and Mr. Schellenberg, who had his sentence uh, confirmed as a death penalty, they're using our citizens as pawns. So I'll be a strong and consistent voice for our interests, our security and our values, unlike Mr. Trudeau, who's always out of step with China. Well, let's talk about uh, 
Michael Spavor and Kovrig, and Robert Schellenberg, who is under a death sentence, uh, upheld by the appeals court in China. And apparently the appeals courts upheld the lower court's rulings about 99% of the time. But we have Michael Spavor and Kovrig, who are essentially hostages of China. And uh, what would you do if you were prime minister of this country? How do you respond to China, whose ambassadors, as you well know, insult this country from within this country? Absolutely. They need to see strength, not weakness, in a Canadian prime minister. And they will see that with me. As you know, I've been for five years saying Huawei should not be part of our 5G and we should have a different approach with state-owned enterprises from communist China. They're not just a multilateral or multinational like other companies. Uh, We were the party that brought a motion to declare a genocide taking place against the Uyghur minority population in China. We need principle. And I think when our, our citizens are approaching a thousand days in prison in a in horrible conditions, we should be using tools like Magnitsky sanctions on certain officials to apply pressure and to make sure our allies do. Our allies see Justin Trudeau as out of step on China as well, especially the United States, three different administrations. So we're not getting full support from our allies because we're seen as being out of step. We need to, to have a principled approach with respect to human rights, our citizens, trade, and our national security. And this, from my business as back, business background, being a Canadian Armed Forces veteran, Roy, I will always stand up for our interests and our values. Okay, Mr. O'Toole, the Afghan interpreters, you've been on this for quite some time. I saw a letter that you wrote to the previous immigration minister who dismissed your appeal to bring the Afghan interpreters to this country. That was 2017. But here we are today, where the interpreters who are still in Afghanistan are under direct threat of torture and death by the Taliban. I just received an email just 10 minutes before I spoke with you with an interpreter we've had on the air quite recently. And I was very concerned about him. And I'm even more concerned now over the content of what he wrote. He's terrified of where he is. And and he's terrified of the prospects of not getting out of the country. How do you assess what this government has done and is doing now as far as getting the interpreters out of Afghanistan is concerned? Well, the Trudeau government has done nothing, Roy. And thanks to your voice, to Joe Warmington, many Canadian Armed Forces veterans, they've been advocating for these left-behind interpreters. Many were brought back by the Conservative government at the end of the Afghanistan conflict. But because of the, the lack of structure in Afghanistan, some of them didn't know about the program. They are at risk because they helped Canada. So that is about as important of a persecuted refugee that we need to bring to Canada as there is, because they're at risk because they helped our men and women in uniform. And to his credit, John McCallum worked with with a number of us to bring one back, Mr. Akam, uh, five years ago, and then Minister Hussein and everyone else, including Sajan, who served in Afghanistan, completely ignored these interpreters. So now with the Taliban closing in on on Kabul and, and, and all the all, all the cities in, in, in Afghanistan, we're out of time. And the Trudeau government wasted the five years that we could have done to bring these left-behind interpreters back. So thanks for your advocacy. We, we need to, to move quickly because the Taliban is getting its, its grip on the whole country. Yeah. And these interpreters and their families are under a death sentence. Mr. O'Toole, let's uh, bring issues home to Canada. Indigenous reconciliation. Speak to that, please. This is something I think all Canadians need to take a role in. And my first, the first time I rose in the House as opposition leader, Roy, my question was on a call to action with respect to truth and reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. We need more than just hollow words and empty promises like Mr. Trudeau on boil water advisories. Reconciliation is about restoring trust between the federal government and indigenous communities and that means delivering so i we're going to be talking about a number of ambitious policies to actually tackle some of the social issues including water but also have economic reconciliation i want to see indigenous peoples being partners in resource projects in in pipelines there's an opportunity for us to have prosperity for all canadians and actually accelerate jobs and revenues for indigenous communities the other parties that are against energy, against the resource sectors, are actually holding back economic reconciliation. But particularly after the reminders from Kamloops and Cowessis 
We also need to see swift action on, on the calls to action related to the former residential school sites. Do you believe you have good communications with the leaderships within the Indigenous communities? I do. You know, Roy, what's interesting is uh, I've, I've worked on some of these issues, even when I was a lawyer in the private sector in Toronto, uh, or with Indigenous entrepreneurs and, and, and businesses. This is important to me. I've always participated in the debates here in Ottawa. I have a good relation with the First Nation uh, chief in my own community. And I've met with the new chief of the Assembly of First Nations and all other major groups to tell them we're going to make sure economic reconciliation, restoring trust and allowing more Indigenous leaders, because there's a generation of, of business leaders, nonprofits, lawyers, consultants. We should have more governance, more accountability through Indigenous leaders being at the table to actually move the bureaucracy forward more swiftly. So, you know, the the Liberal minister was insulting Jody Wilson-Raybould a few months ago and is not even trusted by the chiefs. I will restore that trust and build partnerships. Ms. Wilson-Raybould was a guest on my program, and I asked her about her her book, Indian of the uh, Cabinet. And uh, it's very interesting, the answer that she she replied with. And uh, we'll play that after I speak with you. We'll play it for our listeners. Mr. O'Toole, climate change carbon tax. Whenever I speak with you, people say, ask him why he changed his mind on carbon tax. Why? Well, I changed my approach on carbon price. I still oppose the carbon tax, Roy. Sending more and more money into the black box of of revenue in Canada, in, in Ottawa, is not a solution. In fact, Mr. Trudeau's tripling the price of his carbon tax and not even making the targets, and he's going to increase it even more. But when I promised that we'd come up with a plan to meet our Paris targets, but also get the country moving again after COVID, we realized we had to have a carbon price in there to make sure we met the emission reductions we needed, not just with the large emitters, but with small businesses, farming operations. The difference is our price is one third the price and it stays with the person. So the low carbon savings account, it's a new approach. Yeah, it's innovative. It's not just a tax. It allows people to use the price they pay for their own purchase decisions. The only restriction is it has to be a purchase decision that gets your carbon footprint down. So we put this out as an innovative solution to the provinces. And the great thing, we've modeled it. It meets Paris, but it it gets the country moving again. Jobs, including in the resource sector, who already are getting emissions down. Justin Trudeau just wants to close these sectors. I want to work with them to make our targets, but get the country working again. Let me ask you about COVID, and uh, without rehashing everywhere we've been, let's pick it up where we are now. So there's general consensus in the medical community, I believe, that we're at the beginning of a fourth wave. If you become the prime minister of this country by October of this year, what will you do? Because you know well that the business community across Canada, large and small, is saying we cannot afford more lockdowns. We just cannot afford them economically. What would you do and what's your thinking on vaccine passports and required vaccinations for some sectors in the the, uh, national community? Well, you're right, Roy. I don't think we can afford more lockdowns. I talk to small business owners, especially in some of the hard-hit sectors like uh, live events, uh, restaurants, hospitality, tourism, travel they're holding on by a threat. So our recovery plan, the first pillar, is going to help them. But we also need to make sure that as most of the population is vaccinated, as we hit close to herd immunity, let's use rapid testing. Let's use social distancing masks and all that stuff to contain and trace any any little outbreaks without having to shut everything down. And I think a safe and secure uh, maintaining our opening. I've been in favor of opening the border, using rapid tests, using this 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 information that we have from from U.S. vaccination to make sure that we help the economy recover. And that's what we have to do. We have to continue to encourage people to get the vaccine, uh, use these measures to keep the economy open, to keep make sure we're still working. And I'll tell you, the provinces, if we had vaccines four months earlier, Roy, we would have had a third wave without the restrictions and lockdowns. Justin Trudeau did not deliver I will. Our fourth pillar of our Canada recovery plan is about self-reliance, being ready for a crisis in the future, domestic vaccine capacity. I will deliver 
so that we never have to go through this type of restriction and lockdown period again. All right. Mr. O'Toole, I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. I look forward to speaking with you again during the campaign. I think we will, Roy. Thanks for all you're doing. So there's the interview with uh, Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Conservative Party. And I did say that we would play the clip from uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould when she was on this program. Her book comes out in October, Indian in the Cabinet. And I asked her about the title of the book. I was incredibly proud um, to serve over three years as the Minister of Justice. I came to that role with a different world view, um, being a proud Indigenous person. The word Indian um, used in the title of my upcoming book is is something that I experienced in being treated like an Indian versus a proud Indigenous person. Too bad that book is not going to be uh, available prior to the election date because I think it will be impactful for everybody in this country. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I did have an opportunity yesterday to speak with the parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, popular guest on this program. And one of the things he's doing, and it's the second election he's allowed to do that, we'll talk to you here in just a moment, is they're providing costing, or he will provide costing for campaign proposals by political parties during the election campaign Here's how the interview went with Yves Giroux on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Monsieur Giroux, thanks very much for joining us on the program today. Let me start by asking you, since we're expecting to have an election call tomorrow, uh, you're making uh, available to the federal parties um, report on the costing of their programs. Speak to us about that, please. This is the second time you're doing that, isn't it? Yes, that's true. So first time was in... 2019, and it's a new feature in legislation. So my enabling legislation was amended in 2017, allowing federal parties to ask my office to cost proposals that they are planning on making during an electoral campaign. So the first time this service was made available to parties was in the 2019 election campaign. And if there's an election triggered soon, as is widely expected, parties will also have the opportunity to ask me to cost proposals that they are planning on making. Um, it's uh, at the request of parties. They, they're they under no obligation to ask me to cost their proposals, but it's offered to them uh, for free so that when they make these promises, they can have the, um, this, the guarantee or the professional um, opinion of independent and nonpartisan officials, such as the staff working in my office, so that the costing is the best estimate possible. How often did they do that? Do you recall how often they asked you for costing in 2019? Sure. They asked costings in 2019 on 200 occasions, slightly more than 200 occasions. And of these more than 200 costings that they asked uh, my office, they ended up releasing slightly over 100 of these proposals. So it means that they either didn't like the cost or thought it was too expensive or changed the uh, changed the the approach that they were planning on initially making in the 2019 election that's uh, all parties can confounded you and i have on uh, several occasions talked about the uh, the size of the deficit also the size of the national debt and uh, you had mentioned to me i believe that the federal government is able to sustain the debt but the province is not so much. What is, our, what is our deficit reality now? What is our national debt reality? And where does that place the, the federal government as far as its fiscal uh, uh, parameters, freedoms are concerned? So if there is a, indeed an election that's triggered, we will be releasing shortly after uh, an economic and fiscal baseline on which parties could, could base their own platforms and their uh, fiscal frameworks. So what we estimate, without getting into the specifics, is that the deficit in the year that ended on March 31st, 2021, 
will be upwards of $300 billion, and the deficit for the current year will be about $130, $140 billion, assuming that there are no additional spending items uh, being made uh, and incurred in the current fiscal year. And for the debt, that means that the debt-to-GDP ratio will it has likely crossed the 50% threshold, which is still uh, below the peak that it reached in the mid-1990s of 66.6%, I think. So still uh, some room from the peak. But as you mentioned, it's not the same situation at the provincial level because provinces have expenditures that are expected to rise significantly over the coming years and even decades, namely healthcare in relation to the aging of the population, even though they have lower debt-to-GDP ratios for the most part, um, their uh, prospects are not uh, as good. So they're likely to be faced with ever-increasing deficits unless significant action is, is taken to correct the course. Mm. And ultimately, there is only one taxpayer, whether it's provincial or federal, there's only one taxpayer. Indeed, it's the same taxpayer supporting municipal, provincial, and federal uh, deficits and debt services. Uh, Mr. Giroux, in June, you provided an assessment of the impact of the federal government's plan to exceed the 2030 target for Canada's greenhouse gas emissions under the Paris Agreement. COP26 is just around the corner. Would you speak to us, please, about that, uh, the assessment of the impact of the government's plan to exceed the 2030 target? Yeah, so the government uh, indicated its commitment to go beyond the Paris target and to further reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a more ambition, ambitious manner than what it had agreed to under the Paris Accord. And it's estimating that it will need to further reduce greenhouse gas emission by several megatons. And it plans on doing that by increasing the carbon levy, which is uh, scheduled to reach $50 per ton. Uh, and it will need to increase that by an additional $120 per ton to $170 per ton by 2030 and introduce uh, regulatory measures to reach that target. And we've estimated that these regulatory measures, even though they're not a tax, they'll also have costs. So their equivalent cost will be $91 per ton of CO2 emissions avoided. And we estimated that this will have an impact on GDP of about 1.4% uh, in 2030 when these measures are fully phased in. So um, even though it's not a carbon tax, they have these measures will also have an impact on GDP, and we estimate about 1.4%. How would you assess our, our fiscal reality uh, in Canada at the moment? Because uh, you've also, and this goes back to May of this year, you released uh, information about higher interest rates dampening the stimulative impact of budget 2021 when we finally received that budget. How would you estimate, how would you assess our fiscal reality now? Well, the fiscal reality, when we, when we released our fiscal sustainability report looking at the long-term trends, is that the federal government is still fiscally sustainable over the long term under current policies. And that's assuming that the COVID-19 support measures are allowed to expire as scheduled. So fiscally sustainable, yes, but barely when you look at the federal situation. The situation is more complex when you look at provinces, as we alluded to. So provinces are not fiscally sustainable over the medium to longer term. And when we combine both the federal and provincial governments, that's where we find that governments overall are not fiscally sustainable if we take them as a big, big block. So if you look at the federal government in isolation, a sustainable situation, still some room to increase spending or reduce taxes or a combination of both, but not the case at the provincial level. And combining both, um, we find that the situation is not sustainable over the very long term. Assuming, of course, status quo policies, and that's a big assumption. Of course. Yeah, and is it also assuming status quo as far as interest rates are concerned? Because how much of a margin is there if, if interest rates do rise? Well, that's assuming that interest rates go back to their neutral level, and by neutral, we assume it's the level that they need to reach 
to uh, be non-stimulative, so not stimulate the economy, but not restrict the economy. So we assume steady-state interest rates. And these would uh, would rise by a couple of percentage points, a few percentage points, in fact. So that's assuming that they return to uh, uh, short-term rates of 225, 2.25 to 2.5%, if my memory serves me right. So it factors some increase in interest rates, but nowhere near the levels that we saw, uh, for example, 20, 25 years ago. I was reading a, a story, a news story, um, from the 10th of uh, this month, so last week, earlier in the week, Canada's housing strategy having limited impact on housing need, PBO says, that would be you, of course, uh, in a report published this morning, so the 10th of August, Budget Officer Yves Giroux says Ottawa topped up expenditures on its national housing strategy by nearly one quarter for an average of $3.7 billion annually over the past three years. What effect has that money, that increase, had? So it's, it's increased the nominal level of spending, so which is a good increase, a significant increase. But in real terms, if you take into account the fact that housing costs have increased and a dollar of investment in housing doesn't buy you the same thing now that it used to buy three, four, five years ago. So in real terms, it means that the, the value, the purchasing power of these federal dollars has gone down by about 15%. And the fact that CMHC, which is the main provider of federal support, has shifted its focus from direct subsidies to assist with um, housing affordability, for example, by subsidizing rents, has shifted more towards subsidizing capital expenditures, for example, by helping with construction costs, of affordable housing. So each dollar has a smaller impact on the immediate affordability and that each dollar of investment by CMHC or expenditure uh, has an impact that's spread over the lifetime of these capital projects as opposed to having an immediate impact. So with CMHC shifting away from rent subsidies towards more capital investments, they support our spread over a longer time period, but contribute less immediately to housing affordability. Okay. So that, that's one of the main impacts that we found. Okay. So we have, and that's one aspect of the taking care of those who are or assisting, those who require assistance in our, in our society. There's also a great concern and an emotional concern as well since the arrival of COVID, COVID rather, and that is long-term care for seniors. And uh, you provide an assessment of a, a parliamentary motion of the cost for improving long-term care for seniors. Tell us what you found, please. Yeah, um, so it's uh, Mr. Paul Manley, a Green MP or MP from the Green Party, who tabled that motion, M77, that called for increasing the number of hours of care uh, for seniors in long-term care homes, uh, increasing the availability of these spaces and increasing the wages of uh, those working in, in, these, um, in these facilities. And we found that increasing the number of long-term care beds for seniors to meet the needs, the current needs, uh, would require 52,000 additional beds at a cost of $3.1 billion per year. Increasing the average wages uh, for persons providing long-term care in the private sector and nonprofit sector to align them with those in the public sector would cost $1.1 billion a, a year, and that would mean an increase of about $3 an hour for into their wages to reach 25 bucks on average. Uh, increasing the number, number of hours of care to reach an average of four hours of direct care per resident would also come at a significant price tag or $4.1 billion each year. And the motion also asked to increase the number of hours of publicly funded home care. So for those who can and prefer to stay at home, um, would cost $5.2 billion of, uh, uh, each year. So significant cost for a total of $13.7 billion per year if all the elements of the motion were implemented. 
Yeah, it all adds up, doesn't it? Um, and that's, that's of course, uh, the function that you perform is reminding us of what uh, our fiscal reality is in, as far as federal government is concerned. Mr. Giroux, I'm not quite sure how to, how to phrase this, uh, but let me, let me do my best. If there are areas where you have concern about spending or where the fiscal reality is, where would that be? Perhaps I could, I could ask it this way. Are there amber light and red light issues for you as far as the federal government's um, uh, purse is concerned? Um, there are certainly amber lights, and, and these relate to the prospect for economic growth. And I'm not the only one saying that. Many economists have been saying the same thing for a number of years. Productivity growth in Canada, which is the best way to to collectively get richer, productivity growth has not been uh, what it should or could be in Canada. So there is room for further investments by the private and public sectors together or private sector, whatever you want to characterize that. But productivity enhancements are probably the best way for us to collectively get richer. And business investments are not keeping pace with our peer countries. And and that's something that puts us collectively at risk of falling behind in terms of wealth per person, collective wealth, innovation, and so on. So that's, that's something that to me is an amber light in this country. All right. Mr. It's not very sexy, but it's something that would greatly increase our collective wealth. Yeah. Mr. Giroux, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks very much for taking the time today. Always a pleasure. So there's the uh, interview with uh, Yves Giroux. When you hear those numbers, they're staggering. And then when you realize that it's numbers that we're responsible for as taxpayers, because ultimately there's only one, there's only one person who has money, and that's the taxpayer. Well, we have money till the government takes it away from us. And then they have a responsibility to judiciously spend it. And people sometimes say governments spend like drunken sailors. And I've always said I've been a drunken sailor. And I spent more judiciously then than governments do now. I know what it feels like to be a drunken sailor. Now, we know of the two Michaels. Michael Skovrig, Skovrig and Spavor. Michael Spavor sentenced to 11 years in prison by China earlier in the week. They haven't yet sentenced Michael Kovrig. Ronald Schellenberg had his death sentence upheld by a Chinese appeals court. And from what I understand, uh, the appeals courts in China uphold the lower court's decisions about 99% of the time. So you don't have much of a chance when you go to the appeals process. But I wonder sometimes how the families do and how the families feel and what happens to the families of those people who are um, held hostage, whether it's by a state like China or whether it was Abu Sayyaf, the ISIS-supporting terrorist group in the Philippines. And I used to speak with um, Gord Bibby and his cousin, Benice, about their cousin and brother, Robert Hall, who was murdered by Abu Sayyaf. And Gord Bibby is going to be joining us shortly to talk about how the federal government, in fact, deals with families. Want to to talk about that. I think it's very important that you know this. But let's start with the issue of China and where we stand with uh, Beijing and the ambassadors to this country from China quite regularly dress us down while they're in Canada. They use pretty undiplomatic language to describe us. We, of course, run for the thesaurus to try to not offend Beijing. At least that's my assessment. Uh, Gordon Holden is former Canadian diplomat to China, director emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta, political science professor at the University of Alberta as well. Professor Holden, thank you very much for coming on the program. I want to ask you a generic question first. Do you think China is going to try to capitalize on the fact that Canada is engaged in a federal election? Will they be trying to work us? Well, I think they do watch carefully domestic politics in this country. They will, I'm not saying they'll try to interfere perhaps in the way the Russians did in the United States, but they will not hesitate to take advantage if they see advantage available to them. Okay. And take advantage is whatever they assume or define as taking advantage of us. Exactly. And 
quite frankly, when we divide ourselves on an issue in a partisan way, sometimes it gives an opening for another side to play one against the other. Uh, I'm of the old school. I like it sometimes. It doesn't always work when you have politics starts stops at the tidewater. But when these issues drag on for a long time, like China-Canada relations, there will be a partisan difference, and I understand that. Yeah, we used to call it disinformation. Maybe we still do. What do you say about China's behavior? Are they behaving as expected as far as the two Michaels and Mr. Schellenberg are concerned? Well, I think they're playing true to form. Perhaps in the Schellenberg case, even I was taken aback when they didn't just turn down his appeal of 50 to 15-year sentence, didn't just increase it, but actually ramped up to the death penalty. And that, to me, was was particularly shocking. It, I was expecting nothing better or somewhat worse, perhaps, as an outcome. But just Mr. Schellenberg's incredible bad luck was launching his appeal just a couple of weeks before um, Madame Mong was arrested. And that's just a really um, a ba- a unfortunate timing for him. I don't think he's going to get off. I didn't think his sense would be reduced. But that gave an opportunity, fell in their lap, to send a signal. I hesitate to ask this question, but you never know if family or friends are listening. But do you believe they will, in fact, execute Mr. Schellenberg? Well, I I believe that the, um, both of the two Michaels will return back to Canada. Um, what I can't do, and I wish I, if the family is listening, I could provide them with some some clear guidelines or hope. Uh, I think it could be months. It could be years. So Schoenberg's case is a tougher one. Um, if he is fortunate, I don't really mean that fortunate, but if he, the best, one of the better outcomes for him would be, and the Chinese do this sometimes, they commute a death sentence to something called a suspended death sentence, where you stay on death row for two years, on good behavior at that point, it gets converted to a life sentence. Perhaps down the road, he gets deported. But for the two Michaels, if you'd asked me in December of 2018 that I think it would be solved by now, I would have quite honestly answered yes. Now I'm uncertain. Yeah, there are a thousand days in just a week or two weeks. It's a, it's a, it's a long time. But these aren't the only ones. Uh, other countries have um, not quite as high-profile pro- high cases as we have with the two Michaels, uh, and we're uh, not necessarily ones that are so closely linked to something that that other country has done, as our case, the extradition request for Madame Monk. But uh, this is not a rare thing. It doesn't happen every day, but uh, there would be several dozen people, probably at any given time, who fit into that category of why are they detained, and there'd be some reason other than their presumed guilt. Uh, Professor Holden, it's all about uh, Madame Meng to uh, the Xi administration and to Beijing, but is it is it beyond that? Is it not just uh, about her, but also China saving face at the same time? Well, this is a proud country, and you're right about saving face. I think it's a little bit true about every country, but it's especially true about China. They don't want to, particularly for their own domestic audience. You could say, well, it's a communist country. They don't care about what their people think, but they actually do. And they don't want to be seen by their populace to be weak. And so another country does something that makes China unhappy, as in detain Madame Meng. I think it's domestically good politics for them to strike back, even if it strikes us as completely arbitrary and unfair. What about uh, our federal government, the the current government, Mr. Trudeau particularly, who's expressed a fondness before he became prime minister for China's way of governing? Uh, is he has he been too soft, too gentle with China just until recently? I think he's taken a bit of a harder stand now. But was he too soft in dealing with them? Well, I think we may all have been to that to some extent, and I would include him as well. I worked for multiple liberal and conservative governments, um, multiple prime ministers that traveled to, to Canada, starting with, he was out of office then, but, but um, actually he was still in office. His father, Prime Minister Trudeau, and all of the prime ministers since, I worked on their visits in some fashion. I think we were um, a 
excessively optimistic in the way that China would evolve. It went from a very inefficient economy to a very hyper-efficient economy. Uh, people became relatively wealthy by comparison of where they were before. There was a lot of wishful thinking, I think, in retrospect about evolution of their political system. None of that happened, only on the economic side. And I think that this, also the Chinese were very happy when Prime Minister Trudeau was elected because they figured like his father, he would be able to improve the relationship, send it in a good direction. None of that has panned out at all. So I think people are, are disappointed all around, Canadians especially, but the Chinese as well who had expectations that this would be a, they used the word, they used the word golden era. Not so. Now, what do you expect from China? This is more a generic question than anything else, but what do you expect from China going forward? Because we hear a great deal of concern expressed about their global ambitions, uh, what, what they, their ambitions for, for the Canadian Arctic and, and so on. What do you expect from China? Well, I think more of the same, but much more of the same. Uh, they, the balance between the United States and China is still shifting uh, and shifting in China's favor. I'm not saying it'll be there forever. But I was on a uh, moderating a panel um, where the Chinese, former Chinese ambassador to the United States, they just changed. This was about what, about six months ago. And he said, look, we've got four times the population in the United States. It would not be unrealistic that we have at least double the economy. So if those economies are about the same now, one can imagine 10, 20, 30 years, they could have twice the size of economy. And if they wish to spend the money, they could have twice the size of military uh, in, ter- in terms of capacity. So that'll be a very interesting formula and calculation going forward in this century if those ambitions are realized. So I'd say more of the same behavior, but, but becoming rather more bullshit and expansionist in their policies over time, gradually. Andrew Cuomo, the now former governor, just about, I don't know if he's former governor, about to be the former governor of the state of New York, resigning over sexual misconducts claimed by numerous women. Again, his defense says he's always behaved in a friendly manner, but acknowledges he may have stepped over the line. And he also said the situation and moment are not about the facts. It's not about the truth. This is about politics. Reminds me of somebody who once said... People experience things differently. Well, a woman whose photo was used by Cuomo in his defense, to New York Attorney General Letitia James' report, spoke out publicly with her attorney, famed women's rights issues lawyer, Gloria Allred, by her side. And uh, Gloria Allred joins us on the program. Her book is Fight Back and Win, My 30-Year Fight Against Injustice and How You Can Win Your Own Battles. Ms. Allred, when I listen to Cuomo making that excuse, uh, because that's what it is, he didn't get it. I don't think he. I don't think he gets it yet. Well, I mean, it was a, a non-apology apology. It was really, you know, it, I think he was just attempting to do damage control for his legacy. But look, the fact that he's done it all his life, and and then at another point he added, "This is what Italians do." Um. I, I, it's ridiculous because that means there are many potential victims out there if that's what he's done all of his life. Uh, but in addition to that, for example, I did a press conference not only with, and I represent not only Sherry Ville, who is a New York businesswoman who alleged that he grabbed her and kissed her inside of her home and also outside of her home, uh, and that that was very upsetting to her, and he didn't ask her permission, he didn't ask her consent, he just held her, pulled her to him, and did that. And then, to make matters worse, I also represent Susan uh, Iannucci, who uh, not alleged that he did something similar to her at a public event outside of the school where she works, and further, that he then put that video up of his kissing her as part of his defense uh, to the New York Attorney General's report, which found that he had sexually harassed a number of women. And she was very upset because he never asked her consent to kiss her. And then in addition, he never asked her consent to use the video of his kissing her, grabbing her, as part of his defense. You know, the, oh, look at all the people I've kissed and hugged. 
So that was very upsetting to her because she supports the women and she does not want to be used as, or thought of as somebody who would defend uh, Governor Cuomo's conduct. Finally, I do represent the trooper number one in the attorney general's report uh, on sexual harassment. Very, very brave uh, woman. And uh, she is very, uh, you know, she's happy that the governor resigned and she feels that he did the right thing. And by the way, I want to add to that. Sherry Ville said she's Italian, and it's not what Italians do. They do kiss each other when they greet family members, but they don't grab strangers. They don't grab a, a stranger's wife and just pull them to them and kiss them without asking. No, I don't think that's wise for anybody. Uh, and it's and it's just it, it's indicative to me of, uh, and it was the delay between. The, the first reports about him and his behavior, and even Joe Biden called for him to resign, and, and, and Cuomo said, no, I'm going to stay. I'm going to have a job to do. I just felt, here, this, this guy is the poster child for somebody who didn't get it. So, so how's yeah, well, this? Well, he got it finally. Well, he got it finally. He had to. He had no choice. Because as some people have said, he was on an island, essentially no friends. He had bullied people for so long. Yeah. And look... You know, the idea that he talked about cultural and generational shifts that he really wasn't aware of. Look, the man is a lawyer. The man is, he was attorney general of the state of New York before he became governor. In the last couple of years, he signed into law a new law, extending further protections for victims of sexual harassment. He knows the law, okay? And, you know, he engaged in high risk taking, uh, and uh, it didn't pay off for him. So now he has, you know, we used his power, used his prestige, he used his influence uh, to take advantage of vulnerable women. And now his power uh, is not going to shield him from the consequences of what he did. So what, do, what should those consequences be? Well, the, one of the consequences is both Democrats and Republicans called on him to resign. And then there was uh, a potential impeachment hearing. Uh, that was going to take place in the New York Assembly if, in fact, he refused to resign. Now, as of, I think it was yesterday, that impeachment hearing is suspended. Now, I think they suspended it because he's got about 12 more days before he said he's going to resign from office. So if he doesn't resign, they'll most likely just continue, you know, start the impeachment hearing. But I think he is going to resign at this point. He announced he's going to do it. He realizes that from the point of his legacy, that's not going to be good for him to be going through an impeachment hearing, which he says he would win and all of that, but he wouldn't probably. And that would be, you know, does he really want in his obituary that he was impeached as governor? I don't think so. Probably not. And the other consequences potentially are potential civil lawsuits. One is filed, not by any of my clients and potential criminal prosecution. He is being investigated by four different district attorneys in four different counties uh, in New York. So we'll have to see what happens with that. Only one victim that we know of so far has filed a criminal complaint. So let's move on to uh, Mr. Cosby, who's back in the news, because your client, Ms. Huth, uh, who said that uh, he sexually abused her at the Playboy Mansion when she was only 15 years of age. Cosby's out of prison because of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court making its decision. You and I talked about it a few weeks ago. What's the what's what's going on with the with the, with your with your client, Miss Huthan and Cosby? Yeah, we had a, com, a an appearance before the judge yesterday in our civil lawsuit. The civil lawsuit's been going on for six and a half years, and um, he's brought in still another new legal team to represent him. How many does he have now? I've lost count how many lawyers he's had just in the civil suit alone. Constant kind of revolving door of lawyers. Uh, But having said that, he's brought in uh, a new defense team. And they're going, they've, uh, you know, asserted they're going to make a couple of very significant legal challenges. One, we have a right to take Mr. Cosby's deposition, his testimony under oath. We took the first one that's under seal, so we can't say what it says. But then, because of either his answers or his failure to answers, or a mix of both, uh, we went back to court and asked the court to compel him to sit for another deposition. Of course, Cosby's lawyers objected, but we prevailed. 
And so he does have to appear for a second deposition, but he's saying, oh, but I might still be prosecuted so I can assert my Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and decline to answer certain questions. That's an issue that will have to be resolved soon. As to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, you know, that the, the prosecutor had indicated after the Supreme Court made his decision vacating the judgment of his convictions on the aggravated indecent assault, the prosecutor had indicated that he might be filing with uh, a writ of certiorari with the United States Supreme Court. And so we will know on September 28th or 29th whether they've done that. If they haven't done it, he's not going to be able to say he's at risk of prosecution in Pennsylvania and can therefore take the fifth. Um, but so we're going to wait and see. It's just a little over a month to go. To go. Okay. Okay. And then in refer- there's another significant issue. They, we have a new law in California, Roy, uh, that went into effect January 2020, and that expanded the time period during which victims of child sexual abuse could file civil lawsuits <clears throat> against the persons they accused. Uh, it, we argue, and the defense has to agree that it does apply and does agree that it applies in our case. Um, but they're saying even though it applies, they think it's unconstitutional. Well, if they were successful with that argument that this new law is unconstitutional, it's really going to hurt victims of child sexual abuse because it means that uh, they would have less time to file civil lawsuits. And we all know that for many victims of child sexual abuse, they don't come forward right away. It may take them years to come forward, if at all. And by then it may be too late, late to file a civil lawsuit against, you know, the perpetrator of the harm against them. So this is a very significant challenge, not just for our case, but also for many, many victims of child sexual abuse in California. Yeah. Uh, I've spoken with uh, victims of child sexual abuse who didn't say anything until they were sometimes in their 40s and 50s. They eventually had um, the courage or the strength to step forward and say, this happened to me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 